Heavenly Father, you are indeed our Lord, and we come to you now asking that you would speak to us in your word. Father, I pray once again that you would rule and overrule the words of my lips, that what is spoken would be from you, and that what is heard would be the words of grace and truth and life that you have given to us in this section of Philippians. So, be with us, Lord, we pray in your son's matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. So, last week, David began his sermon with some nice and complimentary uh, comments about my preaching, which is really a bit of a double-edged sword, because generally you like the bar to be really low, right? And then you're like, ah, he's not as bad as we thought. And that normally works out quite well for me, because people who haven't heard me preach before, I show up and they think, how good can a 12-year-old be, you know? Um, So they're normally sort of not as bad as I thought he was going to be, you know, it's good. Um... I want you to know that your pastors throw everything they have into this preaching malarkey. They throw everything they have into it, not to get acclaim or success or to pass some arbitrary bar, but because we're really compelled by the gospel. And the reason that we're really compelled by the gospel is that we really need the gospel. You are led by men in desperate need of his grace. And last week we got a great account of how that grace has been provided for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3 verse 9 we get this great gospel summary that Paul and I and you can be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from works of the law, but a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. David spoke about the fullness and richness of this gospel, saying that there are really two parts to it. On one hand, yes, the gospel means that we are forgiven, that all our sins and all our guilt and all our shame is swept away by a torrent of cleansing grace in the blood of Jesus Christ. But as if that were not enough, the gospel is more. The gospel is, yes, we're forgiven, but also positively that we are made righteous. That it's not just that the Lord brings us into a neutral state with him. It's that he goes further than that to declare us righteous as acceptable in his sight. And there's a big difference between these two things. It's the difference between you are pardoned and you are precious. It's the difference between you are excused and you're embraced. It's the difference between I now tolerate you and I treasure you. Now, don't get me wrong. We are in desperate need of both. As guilty men and women, we want to hear that we're forgiven. Forgiven, pardoned, excused. But as children, as children, we long for more. As children, we long for righteousness, to be precious and be embraced. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are both. We are in relationship with him, joyfully so, because of all that we've received in this forgiveness and righteousness. So what do we do next? Having been given this great fullness of life in Christ, what do we do next? That's what Paul goes on to address in verses 12 and following. Do we eat, drink, and be merry and do whatever we like because God already loves us? Paul answers, no, you would only do that if you were wanting to settle for a shallow life. You would only do that if you were going to pursue pennies instead of the riches of grace. You would only do that if you wanted to sabotage your own joy. 
Rather, Paul tells us that the gospel has a call on our life, a call for so much more, a call to come and live in the present awareness of his good pleasure in us. A call that we walk with him in joyful relationship, that now that we know Jesus, we push on to know him more. We press the gospel into our lives. We knead it into those dark corners that we might have a life that is worthwhile as we experience the rest and joy that is found in Jesus. Knowing him, we want to know him more. How do we do this? How do we get to know Jesus more? This passage gives us so many things, so many principles to help us to know his son. We're going to look at seven of them. So... We better get going. Number one, how do you know Jesus? The first thing this passage tells us, that to know Jesus, to know him, you've got to be hungry. To know Jesus, you've got to be hungry. Look with me at verse 12. Here Paul says, "Um, not that I have already obtained all this, or I'm already perfect. He's referring back to the knowledge of Christ and the fullness of life that can be found in him. And he says, I haven't obtained all of that yet. I haven't made it yet as a Christian. There's still a lot for me to do, a lot for me to learn, lots of ways for me to mature. I've got a long way to go as a Christian. Now, it's sort of amazing that Paul would say this. Last week, David spoke to us about Paul's record, Paul's resume before knowing Jesus, and he showed us how impressive it was. His heritage was old money as a Hebrew of Hebrews. His education was Ivy League, a Pharisee under Gamaliel. His professional life, he was a, he was a rising star working with great zeal. And Paul's resume after Christ, once he has become a Christian, is, is equally impressive, By this point, writing Philippians, he has followed Jesus for for some 30 years. And and in these three decades, he's done some amazing things. Paul Paul is a man who has has healed people. He has enabled lame men to walk. He has even uh, raised someone from the dead. He has been on three incredible missionary journeys, these great expeditions where he has planted innumerable churches and seen tens of thousands of people come to Christ, where he has shaped the future of Western civilization. And then in his spare time, while doing all that, he also has in his resume, wrote the Bible. You know, if I came up to you after the service and was like, you should check out my new blog you clicked on it and it was Romans, okay? That's a pretty impressive thing to have on your resume, to have on your CV. And Paul, this man who has all this knowledge of Jesus, says, I want more. I know Jesus, but I want to know more. I want to press into relationship with him. Two ways to take this. On the one hand, it's kind of discouraging because... If Paul wasn't there, oh man, what hope is there for us? But on the other hand, this is really encouraging. Really encouraging. Why? Because Paul, a man who knew Jesus deeply, says, my Savior is so beautiful. There is so much to him. There is so much worth and value in Jesus that I have just scratched the surface. I've had, my great learning has been just an appetizer of the feast that is to be had in relationship with him. My appetite has been wet and now I am licking my lips that I might know him more fully. He is hungry to be in relationship with Jesus. 
And I wonder this morning if I have that hunger. I wonder if you have that hunger. I wonder if we as a church have this hunger. Have we tasted and seen that he's good? And do we want to apply him and need him in and know him more for every area of our lives together? If I ask you, what do you want? Is the answer, Jesus. That's what I want. I want a larger portion, a surer portion, a better taste, because I know that I am just scratching the surface. If you want to know Jesus more, you've got to be hungry. You've got to be hungry. Second thing we see in this text, also in verse 12, is that to know Jesus more, you've also got to be extreme. To know Jesus more, you've got to be extreme. Paul says, not that I've obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Hungry for Jesus, he now presses on that he might know him more. Now, really interesting thing here is that the Greek term used for press here in verse 12 and in verse 14 is the same word that Paul uses in verse 6 of this chapter. Let's look at verse 6 together. Paul says, as for zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. This word for press on and this word for persecute are the same same word. And so Paul is using a, a graphic powerful, almost violent word to describe how he is pursuing his relationship with Jesus. It is a word that means to aggressively chase something. Think of a hunter catching his prey. It means to earnestly follow something with haste. It means to chase after, apprehend, get a hold of. And before Paul did this with the church, he had great zeal and energy and passion to hunt down the church. And now he uses the same word. And Paul says, the gospel really hasn't mellowed me. I'm still a bit of a maniac. But now I'm that way about Jesus. Christianity doesn't make you soft, passionless maudlin. It makes you energized and passionate and extreme about the right things. And here we read that, Jesus, uh, that Paul is extreme about his relationship with Christ. Very often the world might say, yes, Christians, this is the very problem that y'all are so extreme. Insisting on absolute truth, insisting on one way to heaven, insisting on certain moral or ethical issues. The, the Bible smiles and answers, no, the problem with Christians is that we're not extreme enough. Because while extreme about those things, we're not extreme about humility or generosity our love. And if we were, if we pursued Jesus, if we pressed on, if we persecuted every area of our souls for him, we would have a powerful impact upon this culture. We don't want to be a people who sell ourselves short by pursuing him with half our hearts. We don't want to be a people who miss out by refusing to let him into certain areas of life. We want to press on, work him into our souls. To know Jesus, you've got to be a bit extreme. Third principle we see comes to us, comes to us in verse 10. So let's back up a little bit and look at verse 10. And here we see that to know Jesus, you've also got to be bold. To know Jesus, you've got to be bold. In verse 10, we read that Paul says he wants to share in Christ's sufferings, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
Paul says, one of the things I long for is to share in the sufferings of Jesus, becoming like him in his death. What does this mean? What is Paul saying? I mean, it's not that Paul is some kind of masochist who gets some sort of pleasure or gratification from pain and distress or affliction. Rather, what Paul is is saying here is that he understands that he will know Jesus more fully if he walks where Jesus walked, and if he breathes the air that Jesus breathed, and if he experiences those things that Jesus himself experienced. If he walks this path-marked suffering, he will know Jesus more fully. I remember being at a conference in Berlin and a large group of Americans and then a large group of Germans and then in the midst of the crowd, I heard a Scottish accent. So I marched right up to this guy and I was like, you are from Scotland. And he was like, I, I am from Scotland. And I was like, I have not heard the double I in quite a while, right? And back and forth we went, delighted that we had found each other. And um, you probably do the same thing if you, if you meet someone in D.C. who's from your hometown or if you meet someone who graduated from the same college as you. Uh, you have this, this joy at uh, meeting them. Now, in a sense, this is actually a really weird thing to do. Because you know when I'm in Scotland? When I'm in Scotland, I don't walk down the street going, you and you and you, all you're from Scotland. Right? <laughs> And when you're in your hometown or on the campus of your school, you don't walk around with that state of excitement and jubilation. In a sense, it's quite a strange thing to do. But in another sense, it makes all, all the sense in the world because we realize that shared experiences tie you together. Shared experiences tie you to a person. And in the same way, the suffering of Jesus and sharing in that suffering ties us to him. So it doesn't mean that we go looking for trouble, but it's that if following him requires us to suffer, we will gladly do so, so that we might be more tied to him. If biblical generosity requires us to give up on some dreams, and it ought to, we get insight into all that Jesus gave up for us, and we're tied to him. If the gospel work of evangelism harms your reputation. You get insight into what it was like for Jesus to be rejected by men, and it ties you to him. If standing up for truth means you end up labeled a a bigot or a fundamentalist, you get insight into what it was like for Jesus to be wrongly accused, and it ties you to him. These shared experiences make you, make it like you're from the same time. You have these things in common. And so, we don't shy away from pain or sorrow or suffering when it comes, because we know that it will serve to give us a greater relationship with him. Of course, this isn't easy, which is why we say, to know Jesus more, you've got to be bold. You've got to have that steel in your spine to follow him, come what may. Fourth, let's look in verse 13. In verse 13, we see slightly strange phrase that shows us that to know Jesus, there's a sense in which you've got to be forgetful. To know Jesus, you've got to be forgetful. Read with me. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is how he presses on for the prize. He forgets what lies behind and strains forward to what lies ahead. Now, this doesn't mean literally forget the past. He's not saying 
your brokenness. The hurt, the heartache, the sorrow, the abuse that you've suffered. Just forget about it without a second thought. Be stoic and deal with it. He's also not saying forget about past sin, as if this verse is an excuse not to have to pursue reconciliation or pursue forgiveness. What he's saying here is forget the past in the sense that you're no longer controlled or defined by it. You're no longer controlled or defined by the past. How does this relate to knowing Jesus? Because he's saying you need to understand your story and understand your past experiences as an opportunity to know Jesus more. As an opportunity to know Jesus more. So you don't dwell on it for the sake, for its own sake, but you use it to press into him. So your brokenness, the ways in which you have been hurt, the ways in which you have been wronged, You don't use these experiences to build up walls to stop you from ever being hurt again. Rather, you pursue Jesus through them, receiving that grace-filled healing that you can bring to your heart. And your sin, those wrongs that you have committed, you don't live your life caught up in, in guilt and shame and embarrassment, but you use those things to push into Jesus, repenting and receiving that grace-filled renewal that he has for you in the gospel. Forgetting means we take our past and we move on from it. The past isn't the sum of who you are, but the context from which you pursue Jesus and become who he designed you to be. How do you know if you're getting there? One good diagnostic is you just have a, you start to have a peace to be able to talk about it. When you think of the brokenness or sin of your past, there are no longer red, raw wounds that have to be protected. But you're able to dialogue and, and talk more freely about them. An example of this in my own life was that when I was in high school, I was sexually abused by a, a history teacher. Uh, the teacher went to prison uh, for those crimes and crimes against some other students in my year. Really amazing story. After serving his jail time, he was released and then murdered. It was a very crazy season in life. And you can imagine that at first, this was hard. This was brokenness. This was pain. And, you know, it wasn't an easy thing for me to work through. But as I began to work through it, as the Lord started to bring grace to that experience, the circles I shared it with started to grow. I felt a greater comfort and peace with my story to be able to talk about it. To the point that today, by his grace, I can stand up and talk about it, and it's fine. Now, understand what we're saying here. Of course, it's not that we forget those things have happened. But they don't have a control over me anymore. I'm not defined by it anymore. There's a sense in which it's forgotten. Its power is forgotten. And that's what it means for us to be a forgetful people, no longer controlled or defined by our past, but using our stories to push further into Jesus, seeing how uh, the past chapters are but the preface of where he's taking us in relationship with him. And if you have something in your story today that you have not been able to share, I would love for you to come and share it with us. We have the most incredible care team here who would love to minister to you and help you in your brokenness or your sin. The light is our friend and we want to walk in it. Fifth thing, look with me at verse 17. To know Jesus, you've also got to be mentored. To know Jesus, you've got to be 
mentored. Brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Imitate me and imitate those who are like me. Now, sometimes when you read Paul, things just come across. You could take that to be a little arrogant or a little bit obnoxious. McLean, what you need, be like me. (laughs) Heaven help us. Until, though, we realize or remember the whole thrust of this passage. Paul's point in this passage is not, I'm awesome, be like me. His whole point is, I've not made it yet, and I'm not made perfect. And so I'm pushing on to know Jesus more. I'm pushing on that I might mature and grow and develop in the gospel. And that's the example that he is telling us that we should follow. We should have people in our lives who have, who have gone ahead of us and who have experienced the gospel and who model what gospel repentance looks like for us. And we should be in relationship with them and keep our eyes on them, uh, mod, uh, follow the model that they have given us and allow them to speak into our lives, these uh, people who serve as, as authority figures or mentors. Uh, illustrate, this is, this is really easy to do. I, I do four things. The first thing I do is... A dear PCA pastor who's out of town that I meet with every month. And it's great because he's not in this town, he's not in this state, he's not in this bubble. And so we can talk and exchange and he can call me out and it's really healthy. The second is an elder at this church whose job description is officially to slap me around. So we go to lunch, he asks me how I'm doing, I tell him how I'm doing, he asks me again, I tell him the truth, he slaps me around. Okay? So it works. Number three, um, friends, purposeful, intentional relationships. A few trusted, close friends who really know what's going on with you and who'll call you out. And if they do, you'll listen to them. And if they challenge you, you'll take responsibility. These friends who you, you, you give this position of authority to in your life. Fourth thing for me, and probably the best thing, is uh, a, a really good wife. Um... One of my summaries for Rosie is that she simultaneously, I I have no doubt that she loves me and respects me, and simultaneously have no doubt that she's not that impressed with me. (laughs) And that right there is Ephesians 5, baby, okay? Uh, People in your life who you're real with and who will call you out and who will keep you accountable. People whose example you can follow and will speak into your life. To know Jesus, you need these relationships. To know Jesus, you need to be mentored. Sixth, closing in. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. Here we see that to know Jesus, you've also got to be a good citizen. To know Jesus, you've got to be a good citizen. At verse 18, Paul says, lots of people live their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's a powerful statement. How do they do this? Verse 19 tells us they do this by having their minds set on earthly things. Their God is their belly. They care most about and love food and physical things more than they care about or love Jesus. And they glory in their shame. They boast about those things that they really ought to be ashamed of. A great description of our culture and great description of ourselves. But as for us, Paul says, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. As for us, our citizenship is in heaven. So Rosie and I and our two oldest kids are on green cards. And uh, I loved it when our green cards came through because the official reason that we were granted green cards was 
um, that I do exceptional public good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if they ever come to visit you, that's the line, okay? <laughs> the, uh, maybe the best thing about it, though, and I love this, is that um, that's what my green card says, and Rosie and the kids, their green cards are dependent upon mine. Yeah? <laughs> So strategically in arguments, I'll remind her, remember, I do exceptional public good. <laughs> Circle back to her not being overly impressed with me, right? All in one illustration. Um, but really, my favorite thing about the green card is the official designation I have. Do you know that preaching to you from this pulpit is a resident alien? I'm a resident alien. And aren't we all? Aren't we all? We're all strangers in this land, sojourners in this land, resident here, but citizens of another planet. This world is not our home. We belong somewhere else. We belong to someone else. And Paul tells us that we are citizens and should live with this citizenship in mind. That's what he means when he talks about eagerly awaiting our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's going to come back and complete this work of transformation in our souls by his grace. We're to live as citizens of this land, not focusing upon worldly things, not accumulating all that we can to satisfy earthly appetites, but living with our eyes on where we're going, on where we belong, on heaven itself. We're motivated to get ourselves ready. We're motivated to live in a way that's consistent with our citizenship. At some point, um, Rosie and I and the two older kids will we'll probably do the citizen, citizenship here thing, the U.S. citizenship. But I want you to know that in the meantime, I am living in a way consistent with this citizenship. And my proof of it is two weekends ago, I bought a grill. <laughs> it's like nearly as big as this pulpit, and you stand there and you're like, yes, right? And really, honestly, grill, large gas grills, large Weber gas grill, that's a really American thing, okay? Scotland, not so much. We don't really do this. Come over next Friday. Next Friday's raining, okay? There's just no way of planning on grilling. And so this is a distinctively American thing. And I bought that grill, and I thought, I am living in accord with my future citizenship right here, okay? <laughs> and that's what Paul's telling us to do. He's telling us, buy a grill and know Jesus. Live in line with your true citizenship. The citizenship you have in heaven. To know Jesus, you've got to be a good citizen. Lastly, seventh, finally, and most important, wake up, nudge your, elder, nudge your neighbor if they're sleeping. This is the, the one thing I want you to take away from today, because all the other principles are completely meaningless without point seven, which is this. To know Jesus, you've got to be grace-driven. To know Jesus, you've got to be grace-driven. In other words, all these principles that we've spoken about are completely worthless if you don't understand that at the very center of knowing Jesus is his grace to you. And I'm not making this up. Look with me at verse 12. Paul says, not that I'm perfect yet. Then he says, but I do press on. Why do I press on to make Jesus my own? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
In other words, he says, this effort, this energy, this vigor, this way in which I persecute myself to know Jesus more is just a response to the way in which he pressed on to gain me. He persecuted himself on the cross that I might be in relationship with him. And because he has done that for me, because of all that I've been given in him, I am able to push on to know him more. Our pursuit of Jesus is a response to his pursuit of us. The way in which we seek to know him is a response to the way in which he has first known us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. And we don't strive, and please don't try and follow these principles so that God will somehow be pleased with you. We follow them because we know that in the gospel, God is already pleased with you. Illustration of this came this very morning. It's Rosie and I's 12th anniversary today. Happy anniversary, Rosie. And... You know, we got up this early this morning, and Rosie was so sweet. I get up at zero dark thirty on Sundays because it's game day. You know, I'm like all excited. And Rosie got up with me, and we exchanged gifts. And how's it going to go if I say to Rosie, <clears throat> "Honey, we've been married a dozen years. Uh, I understand that it's expected I get you a gift. It's kind of culturally acceptable. So there you go. Okay. Thinking that's not going to go down so well. Okay. But if I say to her, honey, <laughs> I can't believe we've been married 12 years. We're not old enough to be married 12 years. And can you believe all that's happened in this last decade? Uh, all the Lord has seen us through, all the Lord has done in our lives, all the change he's brought. And the way in which you have loved me and been faithful to me and stood by me and supported me, I cannot believe it. And because this is awesome, here's a token of my affection to you. I should have said that this morning. (laughs) Man, this sermon comes a week late. Okay. Someone who was making notes, send that to me later, okay? Had I done that, I'm thinking that would have gone a little better, right? Why? Because service that's motivated out of duty is not service that has to do with relationship. But service that's motivated out of mutual love is that service that's about relationship. And so understand that Jesus has pardoned your sins. If you're guilty this morning, ask forgiveness in his name and your sins are swept away by a tsunami of grace. And then he's, he's done more than that. He's made you righteous. He has declared, decreed in a one-time past action way, I am delighted with this follower of mine. You know that right now you are as justified before him as you are ever going to be. There's no more justification. It's a one-time thing. Done. Happened. Pleased. Precious. And because of this, because of this love, he says, come on, get to know me more. I've just, just scratched the surface. Just scratched the surface of my relationship with you. Come. Come to me and know me more. To know Jesus, you've got to be grace-driven. This passage calls us, calls us to come, to be hungry, to be extreme, to be bold, to be forgetful, to be mentored citizens who by grace pursue relationship with Jesus. I really hope a couple of these will stick with you and they'll be helpful to you as together we seek to lean into 
and enjoy the relationship we have in him. Let's pray together. Father, there is but one source of joy, and his name is Jesus. And so we thank you for the way in which you, through him, reached out to us to make us your own. And now, Lord, we ask that you would give us such a tangible awareness of that love that we would be excited to press on and make him more of our own. These things we pray in his perfect and matchless name. Amen.